those who study uh, such things, they tell us that every year in America, over 3,000, close to 3,500 churches close their doors forever. Just shut down shop. 3,000 to 3,500 churches in America every year. And at the same time, those who study these things tell us that there are only about 1,000 to 1,100, maybe 1,200 at most churches planted every year. New churches start. So if you just do the numbers, you can see that we're losing ground. Churches are closing at a larger rate than churches are starting. Those who know these things, uh, you know, desire to do something about them. And so what has happened over recent times is there's been just this upsurge in church planting. And if you would just take some time to look into these things, you'll see that there's all these church planting networks that have grown up and these and these places that train church planters and churches are more uh, cognizant of the fact that there is a need to plant more churches. And so you see more and more people talking about this church planting movement. And to some degree, I guess, East Point Church is a part of that, having uh, been planted in the last six to seven years. But when I was growing up, we didn't plant churches. In a little town where I was from, there wasn't church planting going on. I never heard of anything called church planting. Our churches didn't plant. We split. I guess that's a form of church planting. We split. And there were plenty of splits. And you always knew that churches were splitting because they weren't very creative about it. You know, Union Baptist Church on this street split off, and on the other street, suddenly you had Greater Union Baptist Church. <laughs> you ever wonder where that comes from? Now you know. If you see a greater anything... Macedonia Baptist Church became New Macedonia Baptist Church. Now you know. You're driving around the city and you see a church that says greater something, you know where they came from. Nine times out of ten, they split. Schisms and fights, beloved, divisions and splits are not new in the church. It's because people are passionate about important things. And there's nothing more important than the things of God. And people get awfully passionate about these things. And I understand why, such, why people fight over such things and eventually split. I understand that. Because we all care about these things deeply. But still... 
does not make for happy times. Feelings are hurt. Families are fractured. Friends are lost. And most important, the testimony of the church and Jesus Christ is often undermined. Still, because of sin, we often find it hard to get along for long periods of time. Isn't that the case? It's because of the hardness of our hearts. An enemy knows this. The enemy knows this. And so what he often does is he exploits it to his own advantage. And we often find ourselves falling out with the very people we say we love the most. It's a tragedy. It works itself out in many ways. Parents and children and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and friends and family alike. And when you read the Bible, the Bible is really clear on these things, beloved. Division is the work of the flesh. What it says in Galatians chapter 5, I think it's verse 20. Division and dissensions are works of the flesh. They are the strategy of the enemy. Proverbs chapter chapter 6 and verse 19, we are reminded that God hates those who sow discord. He hates it. Why? Because it rails against the work of the spirit in the church. Fights and divisions and dissensions grieve the work of Holy Spirit. The contrary to the fruit of the spirit in our lives and in the church. And still, 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 still these divisions happen. Still, these splits and these schisms happen. They are reality. And our text this morning does not hide it, does it? Does not hide it at all. And yet, if we're careful in looking at it, though it does not hide it, it does reveal to us some very important and encouraging things. Texts will challenge us this morning. But it shows us in this unfortunate episode in the life of the early church, it reveals to us two important things, beloved. It shows to us again, reminds us of the weakness of humanity, the weakness of the human heart. But it also shows us again of the power, the grace, the mercy of God. Paul and Barnabas were missionary mates. Remember that? Not too long ago, in fact. They were missionary mates. They had traveled hundreds of miles together. They had ate countless meals together. They had slept in the same quarters Or they had slept with no quarters at all, out underneath the stars, in the cold. They had been together. They had endured much punishment and ridicule together. 
They had experienced the joys and the pains of ministry. And they had did it together. In one sense, they had become synonymous with each other. I'm sure the early church began to think of Paul and Barnabas like you would think of James and John. Whenever you talked about John, you always mentioned James. Whenever you talked about Paul, begin to say Paul and Barnabas. Seems like up to this point, once they got together, they were never apart. They were missionary mates. In fact, so close they were, so tied together they were that the others at the Jerusalem council, remember, had selected them to carry the letter to the churches in Antioch. The letter commending the gospel and the reconciliation and the power of the gospel to unite Jews and Gentiles. That letter was to be sent and carried by Paul and Barnabas. When they took the letter there, they rejoiced, remember, with the saints who were there. They rejoiced rejoiced with their Gentile brothers and sisters as they shared with them the letter. And they shared with them the ministry that that uh, that the Spirit had been working in the churches in Jerusalem. And they shared with them the gospel once again. It was a glorious time. It's a wonderful time in the Lord. So wonderful, in fact, that Paul looks at Barnabas in verse 36 and says, Hey, man, why don't we go on further and visit some of the brothers and and sisters in the cities where we proclaim the Lord and let's see how they are doing. Let us us go and share the message of what God has been doing in Jerusalem and on Antioch and share it with them. Let's go on another missions trip, Barnabas. Can you imagine? He probably said that with a smile. Excited because he anticipated how Barnabas was going to respond because he knew that Barnabas would say, let's do it. Because he knew that Barnabas had as much love for the brothers and sisters in those places they had visited as Paul did. And he knew, he knew how Barnabas would respond. At least he thought he knew. And in the midst of this joy, beloved, comes the sadness of sin. And the weakness of the human heart. You know, the history of humanity is actually actually the history of moral weakness. What it is. It's the history of moral weakness. Even in the lives of those who we make out to be our heroes, like all of us, they are lives that are flawed. Someone has has rightly said they are fallible human beings. And the best of men are men at best. 
The best of men are men at best. And you know Paul and Barnabas, they were sent out from Antioch because they were the best. They were the best. And yet, even the best are not always at their best. Even the best eventually manifest human weakness. Human weakness. Notice what the text says. After Paul had invited Barnabas to come, let's go and preach the gospel and share the encouragement. Now Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone had not gone with him to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. So that they divorced. From one another. Beloved, before we look at the weakness of Paul and Barnabas, we probably need to recall the weakness of John Mark. Because this is what this really stems from. The weakness that is Paul and Barnabas stems from their argument concerning the weakness found in John Mark. Barnabas wanted to take Mark. John, Mark, with them. And this apparently had become a sore spot with Paul. And when he mentioned John, Mark, all Paul could think about was that young man abandoned us. Remember in chapter 12 and Verse 25 and, and following, Barnabas and Paul decided to take this young man, John Mark, with him. Decided to bring him along as they were going out to see what the Lord is calling them to do. Seems like this young man is eager for the ministry. He's been around. They've, they've seen his, the faithfulness of his mother. They've met in his mother's house on several occasions. And this young man seems to always be around, willing and ready to serve, eager to go into the ministry to do the things of God. And Paul and Barnabas aside, let's take this young man along with us and disciple him in the Lord. How wonderful, how glorious, how encouraging that must have been. And when they get to Antioch and Paul and Barnabas are set aside, are set apart for the mission field in chapter 13 and verse 5, they tell us that they took John Mark with them to assist them. And yet, the Bible tells us in chapter 13 and verse 13 that early on and not even partway through the trip, John... Mark decides to turn back. He decides to go home. Listen to what the pastor said in 13 and 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail for Pamphys and came to Perga and Paphylia 
And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, beloved, we are not told why or we are not told what made him decide that he could no longer travel along with Paul, Barnabas, and the rest of the team. We don't know. But something, something in his heart made him, moved him, motivated him to turn back from the journey and return to Jerusalem. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he had gotten out on the road. He'd gotten out there and began to to see what life was apart from mama. Decided that, whoa, this isn't everything that it was cracked up to be. Mama's not out here cooking. Paul and Barnabas don't know how to cook. Isn't it interesting? You know, the, the first time that I actually left home and had the sense knowing that I was actually leaving home, not just going away to school, but I mean actually leaving home. There arose a little flutter in my heart as I began to realize I'm going to have to find how to eat myself. I'm going to have to find out how to pay these bills myself. I'm going to have to put gas in this car myself. Perhaps he's a little homesick. He wanted to turn home. Or perhaps he wasn't homesick, but maybe he was frustrated. Perhaps he was frustrated. He was frustrated because he didn't like the leadership of Paul. Perhaps there arose a little contention in his heart because you do know that Barnabas was his cousin. And perhaps he thought that Barnabas should be in control and running the mission rather than Paul always speaking up. Perhaps he got tired listening to Paul and decided, I had enough of this. I'm going back to Jerusalem. Or perhaps, beloved, and probably more likely, more likely, he got afraid. He got afraid. Because when you're out there, the nights are a little more darker than they ever have been in Jerusalem. The comforts of home are not with you anymore. And you begin to realize that it's not your mama's faith anymore, but you got to lean on your own. You get out there and you realize that when you're serving in the company of men, you got to carry your own weight. Became a little afraid of the pending dangers as they began to go further and further away from Jerusalem. They began to hear the conversation was beginning a little more hostile. He wasn't sitting in the churches in Jerusalem surrounded by Christians anymore. Now he was mostly surrounded by the enemies. His heart. It grew heavy. His hands began to shake. His feet 
started to itch. And he decided it's time for him to find mama. Whatever motivated John, what it did was it revealed ultimately his immaturity. John shrunk back from the work, beloved. In the face of trial and test, John Mark turned back. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, verse 39, God says, My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then the writer says, but we are not those who shrink back. It's not what Christians do. Christians don't shrink back. Faithful saints don't turn back. That's why we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. What? No turning back. No turning back, no turning back. John Mark had turned back, and he left Paul and Barnabas hanging. And Paul was adamant, John Mark could not come with me again. No way. It's not coming. Christians don't turn back. Dangerous out here. And I need to know that when our back's up against the wall, you got my back because I got yours. And Paul was adamant. I'm not trusting my back to John Mark. Not again. Fool me once. Shame on you. Not again. You know what this does, beloved? In one sense, it reveals the weakness of the young apostle Paul. Doesn't it? It's hard to think like that. The apostle could be weak. The Apostle Paul could be wrong. You don't have a problem with Peter being wrong in Galatians chapter 2. Paul confronted Peter on an issue and told Peter, I faced him. I went to his face and showed him that he was wrong. Well, in some sense, I think this here shows the clay feet the weakness of the human heart of the apostle Paul. But Paul, notice what it says in verse 38, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul thought, beloved, that Mark proved himself unfit for the work. And the language here is strong language. Paul did not want to take one who had withdrawn, turned aside, or fallen away. Fallen away. 
As far as Paul was concerned, John Mark was like those in Luke chapter 8 and verse 13, who the Bible says, believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. He was with us as long as we could see Jerusalem in our rearview mirror. But when when the time of testing came, he fell away. Or he was one that is warned to us in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, who through their unbelieving heart fall away from the living God. John Mark had did what no Christian should do. And he had put others at risk. When Paul and Barnabas were suffering, when they were coming near to death, Mark was at home eating at his mama's table. This, as far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, is not acceptable. This is not acceptable, and therefore, John Mark needed to be taught a lesson. John Mark needed to be disciplined. And Paul refused to bend and give any thought to John Mark going along with them. He was unyielding, beloved. He was unbending. And in this sense, He was unforgiving. He was unforgiving. Yes, Mark had abandoned the work. Yes, he had turned away. Yes, he had shrunk back when the going got tough. But the question that needs to be asked at times like that is, does this young brother deserve a second chance? Sure, it would have been a risk. Sure, Paul, it would have been a risk. But it just seems to me that our beloved apostle seems to have forgotten that it was Barnabas who took a risk on him. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 26, the Bible says, when the other's disciples refused to see Paul, Because they did not believe that he was actually saved. It was Barnabas who took Paul to the others and spoke up on his behalf. It was Barnabas who took a risk on Paul. It was Barnabas who showed the charity. It was Barnabas showed the love. Where is the love, Paul? Where is the love? First Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. Where is the love? It is the apostle Paul himself who would write later in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7 that love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. Where's the love? Does John Mark deserve a second chance? 
And the answer to that question is no. Does not deserve a second chance. But neither do you. And neither do I. And this is the message of the gospel. This is the message that we preach. It's not that we deserve a second chance, beloved. It is that grace and love are undeserved. That they go beyond the call of duty. That our God is a God of second chances. And as Paul himself would later write, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Yes, he drew back, Paul. He was weak. But where's the grace of God? Where's the mercy of God? Where is the love? You see, there is a weakness in the beloved apostle at this point. But there's not just a weakness in Paul, and there's not just this weakness in John Mark, but there is a weakness in Barnabas too. Like Barnabas, like Paul, Barnabas is adamant. Paul says, we're not taking him. Barnabas didn't say, okay, we won't take him. Let's go, brother. But no. Paul is adamant, and in the face of Paul being adamant, Barnabas becomes adamant as well. But Barnabas was adamant because Barnabas was encouraging, right? Barnabas was understanding. Barnabas was kind. But in Paul's opinion... Barnabas was probably kind to a fault. Kind to a fault. Chapter 4 and verse 36, we are told that Barnabas was an encourager, that he's a son of an encourager. And where Paul looked at John Mark and he saw this character flaw, Barnabas looked at John Mark and he saw an opportunity to disciple and encourage a young man in the ministry. So he couldn't believe how Paul was acting. And he was adamant about it. Perhaps Barnabas, beloved, was blinded by his own gifts. And he wanted to encourage at all costs. Even to the point of not rebuking a coward. Even to the point of refusing to discipline where discipline is necessary. He might be accused of being overindulgent. Perhaps he was unwilling to discipline because John Mark was his younger cousin. His cousin comes to him and says, Barney, can you take me along with you, man? He's going to be a little more reluctant to say no. 
and refusing to discipline his younger cousin. Perhaps here, blood is thicker than water. You know, discipline is is hard waters to navigate, beloved. It really is. Some of us are often too strict like Paul, carrying out the letter of the law. She's laughing about Alan. And others are like Barnabas, too lenient and thus taking discipline out of the picture altogether. Discipline is God's design for his people. God disciplines his children, even though you and I may fail to do so. We've seen it. I've seen it far too often. Fathers who failed to discipline their daughters and their daughters become women who struggle and have a hard time submitting to husbands. Mothers who are reluctant and fail to discipline their sons and they become men who believe that they are entitled and they can get from women anything that they want. Because we are reticent to discipline. A church where immorality is running wild and the testimony of Christ is being blasphemed in the streets. Why? Because people are reticent to discipline. That's not what the Bible says, beloved. You and I may be given to overindulgence and tolerate things that the Bible doesn't want us to tolerate. The Bible is clear. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares the rod hates his children. Last time somebody preached on that. You don't have to say amen. I didn't say it. The Bible did. In fact, the Bible says that God loves his children and therefore he lovingly chastises them. He does not spare the rod. Paul wanted a firm and clear discipline of John Mark. Barnabas, on the other hand, strongly disagreed. And here we see the weakness of them both. Not only did Paul and Barnabas not agree, beloved, but they strongly disagreed, the Bible says. Strongly disagreed. There was an argument. No doubt there was a shouting match. Voices were raised. There was sharp and contentious language. Both were irritated. The idea that the Bible is communicating here is that they were provoked to anger. 
And apparently, because of the hardness of the human heart, there was no solution to be found. That is amazing, beloved. That is absolutely amazing. This is unfortunate. Unfortunate in light of what God had just accomplished in reconciling the Jew and Gentile together. It's amazing in that they have just witnessed the power of the gospel in demonstrating that that which brings us together is far greater than that which separates us. They had just seen this on a grand scale. It's amazing to me. It should be to you, beloved, that when we can get up in church and we can sing songs together about the glory of the gospel, but when we get home, the gospel becomes void and of none effect in our everyday lives and relationships. Wow. And here was Paul and Barnabas. They carried the letter, pronouncing the goodness of God and reconciling sinful human beings together. And they themselves could not find in the gospel that power that they preached about. That's scary, isn't it? It ought to wake us up. Stop this foolishness of irreconcilable differences. There's no such thing among Christians. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You see this. Had these brothers not heard? Did they not understand? I would ask Paul, Paul, is this issue between you and Barnabas greater than the issue between Philemon and Onesimus? And yet you tell Philemon and Onesimus, work it out. Is this issue, Paul, greater and more contentious than the issue in Philippi when you tell Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And yet, the apostle failed to do what he would later encourage others to do. Barnabas failed to do what he had on several occasions previously encouraged others to do. Frightens me, beloved. Because I preach week in and week out. 
And I'm always afraid of preaching to you what I'm not concerned, what I am not careful to do myself. Should frighten you as well. Told you this was hard, but it's good. It's good, beloved. Rather than yielding, rather than yielding, they were unyielding. Rather than compromise, they were uncompromising. And being unyielding at this point is not a strength in the apostles, it is a weakness. Refusing to compromise and get along is not a strength at this point. It is a weakness. Yet, what we learn over and over again from the Bible is that our weaknesses, even our sin, is no match for the power and the grace, and the mercy of God. Here's the amazing thing about our text this morning, beloved. And that is the amazing power of God is on display in that God takes our wrongs and he makes something right out of them. This is absolutely amazing. That God is able to take our weaknesses and through them show us his strength. Show us his power. Paul and Barnabas, because of the weakness of their own hearts, decided to end their partnership. But that did not bring an end to the mission of God. That is, this is amazing. This is why God is not like me. This is why God is not like you. And this is why you're glad he's not like me, and I'm glad he's not like you. God's goodness and grace, beloved, in case you didn't know it, is sovereign. It is so sovereign that it is sovereign over your sin. You think about that. Your sin and my sin does not frustrate the plans and the purposes of God. Think about this. If God was hindered by sin, he wouldn't get anything done. Because, beloved... In a real sense, all he has to work with is sinners. And all we do every day is throw up over ourselves. And that's all he's got to work with, she. Is sinners. And your sin and my sin does not frustrate his Work. That's why it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, all things work together for good. All things, beloved, all 
things, not just those things that we think are good, not just our good and righteous living, but all things, including our sin. Working, God is working your unrighteousness and your ungodliness and your sin out for his glory. And ultimately, if it's for his glory, then it's ultimately for your good. It's absolutely amazing. You can't even get your mind around it. But if you just think about it for a moment, this is what God does. Is the sin of Adam and Eve that brings the promise of Christ the Messiah. It is the sin of Joseph's brothers in selling him into Egypt that God uses to ultimately save Egypt and all of Israel. It is the sin of David and Bathsheba and the adultery that God ultimately uses that union to bring forth Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived. It is Jesus being put to death by human hands and God redeeming sinful human beings through the death of Jesus Christ. Think about that this morning. Paul and Barnabas split because of the hardness of their heart. Barnabas takes Mark. Paul decides to go his way with silence. Out of one team, now there's two. Instead of the church progressing in one direction, now the church is progressing in two. Paul doesn't have Barnabas with him, doesn't have John Mark, but he still needs a young man to bring along. And soon they travel to Philippi and God brings him Timothy. This is the power and the sovereignty of God. What the enemy means for evil, God has determined ultimately for good. And when we, beloved, are at our worst, God is then at his best. Think about that. When you are at your worst, that's when the grace of God is at his best. Jesus says, I didn't call, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the nature, beloved, of sin and salvation. Someone has rightly said that the only thing that we have to offer in salvation is the sin that needs to be forgiven. And that is so true because even our sin then, in this sense, glorifies God. And God uses us to glorify himself. And this is the message of the cross. For the cross was humankind at its worst. And yet, the cross is all saying. 
It's also God giving those sinful human beings his best. You know, Romans chapter 6, I mean chapter 5 and verse 6 says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It is our weakness, beloved. It is in our weakness. It is in us admitting that we are ungodly. You're not going to get saved unless you know you're ungodly. Because those are the ones for whom Christ died. He died for the ungodly. Did he die for you? Yes. Then you're ungodly. Because if you're not, he didn't die for you. And in this sense, Christ died for our divisions. Christ died for our dissensions. Christ died for our hard-heartedness. Christ died for our anger. Christ died for our splits and our schisms. Christ died for our unwillingness to yield to others. Christ died. That's why you should be asking yourself the question all the time. Can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For him who to death he pursued? Do I have a portion in his blood? Why? Why should I have a portion when I am weak, when I am ungodly, when my heart is full of division and dissension and splits and schisms and anger? When I am unyielding, when I want my way. And yet it is that. It's for that that Christ has died. It is for that. That the grace of God has come. It is for that. And through that. That God is glorified. In your life. I believe Paul learned that. I believe he learned that. You know why I believe it? Because in Galatians Galatians chapter 4. And verse 10. He commends Barnabas, and he commends Mark, who is with him. He gets to the end of his life in 2 Timothy, and he tells Timothy, come, come and visit me while I'm in prison, and don't fail to bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. He learned the power of the gospel to reconcile. You haven't gone too far. You haven't gone too far. It's possible today for the gospel to reconcile and bring you home. Amen. Let's pray.